Letter 19 My dear Wormwood, I have been thinking very hard about the question in your last letter. If, as I have clearly shown, all selves are by their very nature in competition, and therefore the enemy's idea of love is a contradiction in terms, what becomes of my reiterated warning that he really loves the human vermin and really desires their freedom and continued existence? I hope, my dear boy, you have not shown my letters to anyone. Not that it matters, of course. Anyone would see that the appearance of heresy into which I have fallen is purely accidental. By the way, I hope you understood, too, that some apparently uncomplimentary references to Slubgob were purely jocular. I really have the highest respect for him. And, of course, some things I said about not shielding you from the authorities were not seriously meant. You can trust me to look after your interests. But do keep everything under lock and key. The truth is I slipped by mere carelessness into saying that the enemy really loves the humans. That, of course, is an impossibility. He is one being. They are distinct from him. Their good cannot be his. All his talk about love must be a disguise for something else. He must have some real motive for creating them and taking so much trouble about them. The reason one comes to talk as if he really had this impossible love is our utter failure to find out that real motive. What does he stand to make out of them? That is the insoluble question. I do not see that it can do any harm to tell you that this very problem was a chief cause of our father's quarrel with the enemy. When the creation of man was first mooted, and when, even at that stage, the enemy freely confessed that he foresaw a certain episode about a cross, our father very naturally sought an interview and asked for an explanation. The enemy gave no reply except to produce the cock-and-bull story about disinterested love which he has been circulating ever since. This our father naturally could not accept. He implored the enemy to lay his cards on the table and gave him every opportunity. He admitted that he felt a real anxiety to know the secret. The enemy replied, I wish with all my heart that you did. It was, I imagine, at this stage in the interview that our father's disgust at such an unprovoked lack of confidence caused him to remove himself an infinite distance from the presence with a suddenness which has given rise to the ridiculous enemy story that he was forcibly thrown out of heaven. Since then we have begun to see why our oppressor was so secretive. His throne depends on the secret. Members of his faction have frequently admitted that if ever we came to understand what he means by love, the war would be over and we should re-enter heaven. And there lies the great task. We know that he cannot really love. Nobody can. It doesn't make sense. If we could only find out what he is really up to. Hypothesis after hypothesis has been tried, and still we can't find out. Yet we must never lose hope. More and more complicated theories, fuller and fuller collections of data, richer rewards for researchers who make progress, more and more terrible punishments for those who fail. All this, pursued and accelerated to the very end of time, cannot surely fail to succeed. You complain that my last letter does not make it clear whether I regard being in love as a desirable state for a human or not. But really, Wormwood, that is the sort of question one expects them to ask. Leave them to discuss whether love or patriotism or celibacy or candles on altars or teetotalism or education are good or bad. Can't you see there's no answer? Nothing matters at all except the tendency of a given state of mind in given circumstances to move a particular patient at particular moment nearer to the enemy or nearer to us. Thus, it would be quite a good thing to make the patient decide that love is good or bad. If he is an arrogant man with a contempt for the body really based on delicacy but mistaken by him for purity, and one who takes pleasure in flouting what most of his fellows approve, by all means let him decide against love. Instill into him an overweening asceticism, and then, when you have separated his sexuality from all that might humanize it, weigh in on him with it in some much more brutal and cynical form. 
If, on the other hand, he is an emotional, gullible man, feed him on minor poets and fifth-rate novelists of the old school until you have made him believe that love is both irresistible and somehow intrinsically meritorious. This belief is not much help, I grant you, in producing casual unchastity, but it is an incomparable recipe for prolonged, noble, romantic, tragic adulteries, ending, if all goes well, in murders and suicides. Failing that, it can be used to steer the patient into a useful marriage. For marriage, though the enemy's invention, has its uses. There must be several young women in your patient's neighborhood who would render the Christian life intensely difficult to him if only you could persuade him to marry one of them. Please send me a report on this when you next write. In the meantime, get it quite clear in your own mind that this state of falling in love is not in itself necessarily favorable either to us or to the other side. It is simply an occasion which we and the enemy are both trying to exploit. Like most of the other things which humans are excited about, such as health and sickness, age and youth, or war and peace, it is, from the point of view of the spiritual life, mainly raw material. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Letter 20 My dear Wormwood, I note with great displeasure that the enemy has, for the time being, put a forcible end to your direct attacks on the patient's chastity. You ought to have known that he always does in the end, and you ought to have stopped before you reach that stage. For as things are, your man has now discovered the dangerous truth that these attacks don't last forever. Consequently, you cannot use again what is, after all, our best weapon, the belief of ignorant humans that there is no hope of getting rid of us except by yielding. I suppose you've tried persuading him that chastity is unhealthy? I haven't yet got a report from you on the young women in the neighborhood. I should like it at once. For if we can't use his sexuality to make him unchaste, we must try to use it for promotion of a desirable marriage. In the meantime, I would like to give you some hint about the type of woman, I mean the physical type, which he should be encouraged to fall in love with if falling in love is the best we can manage. In a rough and ready way, of course, this question is decided for us by spirits far deeper down in the lowerarchy than you and I. It is the business of these great masters to produce in every age a general misdirection of what may be called sexual taste. This they do by working through the small circle of popular artists, dressmakers, actresses, and advertisers who determine the fashionable type. The aim is to guide each sex away from those members of the other with whom spiritually helpful, happy, and fertile marriages are most likely. Thus we have now for many centuries triumphed over nature to the extent of making certain secondary characteristics of the male, such as the beard, disagreeable to nearly all the females and there is more in that than you might suppose. As regards the male taste, we have varied a good deal. At one time, we have directed it to the statuesque and aristocratic type of beauty, mixing men's vanity with their desires and encouraging the race to breed chiefly from the most arrogant and prodigal women. At another, we have selected an exaggeratedly feminine type, faint and languishing, so that folly and cowardice and all the general falseness and littleness of mind which go with them shall be at a premium. At present, we are on the opposite tack, the age of jazz has succeeded the age of waltz, and we now teach men to like women whose bodies are scarcely distinguishable from those of boys. Since this is a kind of beauty even more transitory than most, we thus aggravate the female's chronic horror of growing old, with many excellent results, and render her less willing and less able to bear children. And that is not all. We have engineered a great increase in the license which society allows to the representation of the apparent nude, not the real nude, in art, and its exhibition on the stage or the bathing beach. It is all a fake, of course. The figures in the popular art are falsely drawn. The real women in bathing suits or tights are actually pinched in and propped up to make them appear firmer and more slender and more boyish than nature allows a full-grown woman to be. 
Yet at the same time, the modern world is taught to believe that it is being frank and healthy and getting back to nature. As a result, we are more and more directing the desires of men to something which does not exist, making the ratio circle of the eye and sexuality more and more important, and at the same time making its demands more and more impossible. What follows, you can easily forecast. And that is the general strategy of the moment. But inside that framework, you will still find it possible to encourage your patient's desires in one of two directions. You will find, if you look carefully into any human's heart, that he is haunted by at least two imaginary women, a terrestrial and an infernal Venus, and that his desire differs qualitatively according to its object. There is one type for which his desire is such as to be naturally amenable to the enemy, readily mixed with charity, readily obedient to marriage, colored all through with that golden light of reverence and naturalness which we detest. There is another type which he desires brutally, and desires to desire brutally. A type best used to draw him away from marriage altogether, but which, even within marriage, he would tend to treat as a slave, an idol, or an accomplice. His love for the first might involve what the enemy calls evil, but only accidentally. The man would wish that she was not someone else's wife, and be sorry that he could not love her lawfully. But in the second type, the felt evil is what he wants. It is that tang in the flavor which he is after. In the face, it is the visible animality, or sulkiness, or craft, or cruelty which he likes. And in the body, something quite different from what he ordinarily calls beauty, something he may even, in a sane hour, describe as ugliness, but which, by our art, can be made to play on the raw nerve of his private obsession. The real use of the infernal Venus is, no doubt, as prostitute or mistress. But if your man is a Christian, and if he has been well-trained in nonsense about irresistible and all-excusing love, he can often be induced to marry her, and that is very well worth bringing about. You will have failed as regards fornication and solitary vice, but there are other and more indirect methods of using a man's sexuality to his undoing. And, by the way, they are not only efficient but delightful. The unhappiness produced is of a very lasting and exquisite kind. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape.